You're listening to Mystery Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will discuss the double homicide of Lisa and Kaylee Bennett. Welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. I'm so happy you are all back here. I hope you all had a lovely week. Um, this past weekend, if you're catching up, um, was just Father's Day. So if you have a good relationship with your father and you were able to celebrate him this past weekend, then that's awesome. I hope that you guys did something fun. But I also know that Father's Day is a little bit difficult for for some. Um, some people have experienced child loss. Other people have strained relationships with, with their fathers. Some people who don't know who their father is. Um, and I hope that you also were able to enjoy the weekend the best that you could. Um, I hope that even if you didn't have a father that you were able to celebrate possibly a father figure or a very important man in your life and just express your appreciation for them. So um, please know that I am aware that not everybody has a great relationship with their dad and I hope that um, you took care of you. Do you know what I mean? You took care of your emotional health as well and your mental health. Um, so I hope that you guys were able to enjoy yourselves. Um, I am, if you're new around here, I am so glad that you found my podcast, uh, to both sets of listeners, new and my ride or die. I know that there are so many options out there in the true crime realm and even more so in the podcast world. So I appreciate you listening to mine. Uh, thank you all for the love that you shared with me about the episode last week. I had so much fun researching the hotel and even more fun staying overnight on location. It is always fun to just try something new and it's even more fun when the episode is received well by you guys listeners so thank you all so much for your support and love of that episode it kind of makes me want to go out and make another one like it soon (laughs) sooner rather than later before we begin today's episode I wanted to just do a little bit of housekeeping because it's important um but as always I promise to keep it brief um I mean you know I've got to make some shameless plugs or else I wouldn't be doing my job, right? (laughs) So if you aren't already following us on Instagram or maybe you didn't even know that we had one, now you do. Uh, I have an Instagram account. It's at mystery still unsolved. You can also find all of our episodes, not only on Apple and Spotify, but also by visiting my website at www.mysterystillunsolved.com. Today we are going to be discussing a case that I learned about a few years ago that still haunts me to this day. My attention was originally brought to this particular case by watching a show called Cold Justice on Netflix. And if you don't know what Cold Justice is, I'm going to give it a great little plug right now. And it's not sponsored. I just completely love the show. Um, A very prestigious Southern prosecutor named Kelly teams up with a very well-renowned forensic scientist named Yolanda, and together they visit underfunded and small towns across America and attempt to help them solve their unsolved cold cases, hence the name Cold Justice. You know, it is shocking, absolutely shocking to know how many untested DNA vials 
lie in wait, just waiting to be tested and run against CODIS. It's so unfortunate, but you know, DNA testing isn't cheap. It's expensive. So it's difficult for these small towns in particular to have enough money to pay for them. And when they're already struggling to make ends meet, but these two incredible women and absolute experts in their various fields come in and the show funds the DNA tests that so desperately need to be done. And quite a few times the perpetrator of their crime has been stupid enough or just couldn't help themselves um, that they got busted for another crime. And so their DNA is in the CODA system. And then just as they're about to get released from their crime that they're in jail for, these incredible like silver servants <laughs> make sure that these idiots are locked up for good. I absolutely love it because if you've been listening to me for even just a single episode, you know that I am a sucker for justice served up on a silver platter. All right, so let's get into it. But just a heads up, this is a rough, rough case. And that is why it's been several years since I've learned about it and even to this day I'll randomly think of it and it will absolutely crush me like I'll be having a good day and then like randomly I'll think about this case and I will just be so sad for the rest of the day um I feel like for the most part I try to block this case out and not remember but then some days it just hits me like a ton of bricks that heinous and awful and terrible things like the crime I'm about to tell you about really happen and it's so disheartening it makes me so enraged and disappointed in humankind I mean obviously it's important to remember that there is so much good in the world and that there there's so much goodness in some people but it's often painful and so we try to avoid remembering that there's also a lot of deviance and evil in some people and oftentimes for unexplained reasons they're evil, which makes it all the more terrifying and disturbing. Well, that was my little Rochelle rant. Uh, without further delay, let's talk about the Fort Wayne, Indiana double homicide of Lisa and Kaylee Bennett. On June 21st, 1993, Lisa's mother, Irene Whirling, woke up and went to her daughter's home. Um, she had been trying to call. She had this weird feeling in her stomach, like something wasn't right. And she had tried to call several times and hadn't gotten hold of anyone. Uh, So she just decided that she was going to go to the home. And yeah, it wasn't a planned visit, but this was not quite uncommon for the mother and daughter who had an extremely close relationship. Uh, Lisa Bennett was a 29-year-old single mother um, to a beautiful six-year-old little girl named Kaylee with vibrant red curly hair. Uh, Lisa was doing okay, but she did need help raising her young daughter, and her mother was more than happy to step in that role while also spending time with her daughter and granddaughter. Lisa's mother arrived and was surprised uh, to not hear noises coming from inside the home as she walked up to the front door. Uh, Kaylee was six. She was very well behaved, so I don't think that she expected to hear like a lot of yelling or chaos emanating from the house, but when she walked up, she didn't hear any giggles. She didn't hear singing or talking coming from the house at all, and that kind of started to trigger her spidey senses. And she also knew that something 
was not right because it was past the time when Kaylee would have woken up. The car was there. And also, the door was ajar. Lisa's mother said that when she noticed that the door was ajar, she immediately went in and she called out for Lisa and she didn't hear anything. So she called out again, still nothing. So she made her way into the home and she made a gruesome discovery. So gruesome that Irene says that her eyes couldn't even process what she was seeing. She saw Kaylee laying face down in the carpet. She knew immediately that Kaylee wasn't like sleeping because it was obvious that she had been beaten. Lisa's mother turned the corner and found Lisa dead on her bed. She had been strangled. She had been pulled to the end of the bed and her underwear was pulled down to her ankles. Right away, we are told that this murder was most likely a crime of passion or of opportunity, but not from a stranger because the killer had not brought anything with them to the scene. No supplies, no gloves, no nothing like that. The murder weapon used to strangle Lisa and Kaylee were simply items that belonged to Lisa and Kaylee that were in the home. Whoever did this had not planned this whole elaborate scheme out. They didn't like wear gloves or you know, have a lookout. It's as if someone just walked into the house like a guest, literally snapped and killed them with whatever they could find lying around. Because of the sloppy, non-existent planning, the prosecutor is pretty sure that they must have left some sort of DNA or some type of evidence behind. Yolanda and Kelly first meet up with a detective on the case, Carrie Young. Um, he has been assigned to the cold case for quite some time. We learn that this case actually has a lot of physical evidence, but it also has some very diff- difficult and uncooperative witnesses. The detectives run down the case with Yolanda and Kelly. They again repeat that um, on June 21st, 1993, Irene, Lisa's mother, and Kaylee's grandmother found Kaylee and Lisa dead inside the home. They say that the mother reports the door was ajar. The police say that when they entered, Kaylee had a cord wrapped around her neck eight times and that Lisa was laying partially on the bed, partially off the bed, and that she had... um, a belt around her neck that had been snapped. They do have a few suspects in mind, so they're not completely at square one. Their first person of interest is a man named Bryce McGriff, who was Lisa's current boyfriend at the time, who we also learned was married to another woman at the time of Lisa and Kaylee's murder, but they were married, but in the process of a divorce, so they weren't like really living in the same home or anything. It was reported that Lisa had been expecting a visit from Bryce that very evening because he had recently gone to a family function in Texas and was arriving back home from that vacation that night. He had told Lisa that after his plane landed that he was going to stop by on his way home. The medical examiner puts the murder of Lisa and Kaylee anywhere between 11.30 p.m. to 1.30 a.m., and Bryce's plane landed at 10 o'clock, which would have given him ample time to commit the murders because it does fit into the timeline. Bryce also has a history of domestic violence, so this does perk up their ears a bit because it means he has a tendency to get violent, to get physical with partners when something doesn't go his way. 
Another person of interest is a man named Franklin Douglas. He's known as Frank or D to his friends, so I'll be using them kind of like interchangeably. Um, and he was Lisa's ex-boyfriend. He also has a history of domestic violence. Another thing that's interesting about him is that Lisa and Frank had recently gotten into like a huge argument because Lisa had just learned that Frank and her best friend Stephanie had begun hooking up and were now in a relationship. And now Frank was living with Stephanie. This obviously caused some drama. Um, it doesn't help that she was so off the chart mad about what had happened between her ex-boyfriend and her supposed BFF that the night before the murder, Lisa actually went to her friend Stephanie's house and started banging on the door. She knew that people were inside, but nobody was answering. And so when no one answered, she yelled to Frank, I know you robbed that store and I'm going to tell the police about it. Did this threat cause Franklin to kill her in an attempt at self-preservation? Maybe. It does sound like a motive to me. Lisa's mom and sister are still alive, and they are pushing for their loved one's murders to be solved. They are still in contact with police detective Carrie on a regular basis, so it only made sense that Kelly and Yolanda would go to visit them. Irene, the mom and grandma, says it was absolutely devastating. She never believed in her life that she would witness something so terrible. Irene carries a lot of guilt. She says that the night of the murder, Kaylee had called her to ask her if she could come over and have a sleepover. And Irene had told her granddaughter, why don't you come and sleep over tomorrow night? Because Papa will be working tomorrow night and I'll need you to keep me company. And that morning, that's the morning that she got that pit in her stomach and she went over to the house. That's the morning she found her little granddaughter and her daughter dead. She wishes that she could go back in time and tell Kaylee, yes, yes, you can stay the night because maybe Kaylee would still be here today. Lisa's sister Jackie said that the thing that hurts her the most is that Kaylee was actually born premature and suffered with a lot of problems um, attempting to survive before she was stable enough to bring home from the hospital. She said that it hurts to realize how hard Kaylee fought to come into this world and how hard she must have fought going out of this world and that it just doesn't seem fair to her and I agree. Irene says it perfectly when she says, How much do I miss him? If I could cut my heart out right now to bring him back, I would do it. Jackie and Irene aren't asking for a lot. They just want the person who murdered their family members to be held responsible. Kelly and Yolanda head to the home where Lisa and Kaylee were murdered. Right away, they say that they don't believe that it was a random intruder or anything like that. First off, there was no forced entry. Nothing was missing from the home except for a single VCR, which could just be a red herring used by the killer to throw investigators off. Kaylee was murdered right in front of the television. From the crime scene photos, we can see the setup around Kaylee at the time of her death. The TV was on. She had a little blanket. She had crayons and a coloring book, food and a drink. Kaylee is six, so we can assume that she had not created this little awesome setup for herself. It's more likely that Lisa, her mom, wanted Kaylee to be able to self-entertain herself for a bit. 
Yolanda, using the evidence, uh, creates a map of what she believes happened in the room. She says that she believes Lisa was sitting on the edge of the bed when she and the other person, whoever it was, got into a pretty heated argument. Uh, She believes that the killer grabbed a nearby belt, just whatever was around, and wrapped that around Lisa's neck from behind. They can tell that they did it from behind because the the mattress was askew off of the bed like in a downward direction the belt actually snaps from being pulled so tightly with the belt snapped but the murder not entirely complete they the killer grabs another item of opportunity which happened to be a plastic bag we know that lisa fought for her life she has scratch marks and bruising grab marks all over her arms she fought like hell to save her life and and you know protect her daughter as well but whoever her killer was was just stronger and overpowered her. I mean, she was fighting, fighting. It was a combination of strangulation and suffocation that killed Lisa. A strange aspect of the crime scene are two empty bottles of feminine douche, which appear to have been recently used. Some theorize that Lisa had used it before a recent sexual encounter, but Yolanda believes that it was actually the killer's attempt to rid Lisa of any of his sperm that was still inside of her. Whether it was consensual or not, the killer knew that they would be able to be identified with that semen, and that is why there were two completely empty bottles of douche nearby. This person also takes Lisa's purses. I'm assuming that they were looking for money, and while rifling through her wallet, drops her driver's license on the ground. Now, this killer is in a panic. He just killed somebody. I don't think it was a planned thing. And he knows that he's killed her. He's gotten rid of her DNA. And now all he has to do is get out of the house. So he leaves the room and he's familiar with the house. And he knows that all he has to do is turn around the corner to get out the front door. But as he turns around the corner, he remembers that there's a slight problem. Kaylee. All that stands between him and the exit Kaylee. This person is already thinking strangulation because he just strangled Lisa in the bedroom. So he takes a nearby cord, wraps it eight times around Kaylee's neck. He waits for her to die, which probably didn't take very long because she's a little girl, and just drops her where she was and walks out the door. He believes that he has achieved salvation But what he's done is he's just guaranteed himself eternal damnation. Um, It's absolutely horrendous, Yolanda's theory, but I do have a feeling that Yolanda is basically 100% right. Kelly says on a drive that she once prosecuted a man who had killed a woman and used the cord of a lamp to strangle her. And in that case, they were able to lift his DNA off of the lamp cord. And so she is really confident that they are going to be able to pull DNA off either the cord or the belt. In 1993, biological testing was limited to fluids, but 
Now they have the ability to pull DNA off of something as simple as the touch of someone's palm of their hand. So the technology has really, really advanced in recent years, truly. So with such a sloppy murder and so many items being touched during the murders, belt, cord, douche bottles, bags, VCR, they are really, really hopeful that something is going to come of that. Lisa was dating or had dated both men. So Kelly and Yolanda will now interview anyone who knew Lisa or Frank or Bryce around the time of their deaths to see if they can get any information. They're banking on someone who might have been afraid to say something at the time of the murder to feel more comfortable and more confident now speaking openly to the police because, I don't know, it, it makes sense. If you know your boyfriend killed someone and you're living with them, you might not be very willing to talk. But maybe 20 years later, that person isn't even your boyfriend or your husband anymore. So the threat of direct injury to you has lessened. So maybe now you're feeling more comfortable talking. They interview a bunch of people and this name Frank keeps coming up. And we know that Frank is one of the people of interest anyways. Um, So there's this witness, and I'm just going to call him Tim, and that witness says, something with that dude, referring to Frank, is not right. Everybody knows D is not right in the head. Peggy, a friend of Lisa, said that Frank was a shady character. He had been involved in drugs, and in fact had even been high that very night of the murder. They speak to someone else named Dwayne Hall, who gave Frank an al an alibi at the time of the crime, and Dwayne says he remembers Dee coming by to his home unexpectedly. He says that Frank came over and he wanted Dwayne to come with him and purchase and then do some drugs. Dwayne said, I mean, yeah, that sounds good. I'll do that, but we can't do it here at my house because my kids are here and I don't want them around this kind of stuff. So they left Dwayne's house and went to a mutual friend named Garfield, and they, that's where they got high. After the drugs were gone, Dwayne walked home and Garfield and Dee stayed at Garfield's house. Frank had previously said in a statement that they all went to a club after getting high. So this is Frank being caught in a lie. Tracy Starks, a friend of Lisa's, said that a few nights before the murder, he went over to Lisa's and she didn't seem right. She seemed very paranoid. He said that she was super jittery and every car that drove by, she would like look out the window or jump. And he finally asked her, what is going on with you? Lisa started to tell Tracy about her boyfriend and how he had threatened to kill her and that she was super scared. But Tracy wasn't sure if she had been referring to her current boyfriend, Bryce, or her ex-boyfriend, Frank. So, now they go and talk to Bryce. Bryce says that he only dated Lisa for two to three weeks, but that they did get very close within that time frame because Bryce had been going through a lot emotionally. Like, I think he had had, like, a death in his family or something, and Lisa was the only one who had been there for him. The detectives remind him of how upset he was when they came to the house and told them of Lisa and Kaylee's death. And he says, quote, oh my gosh, of course I was upset. She was there for me. She was the only one I had to talk to. And then when they told me about the little girl, I mean, man, who kills a sweet little girl like that? It's cold-blooded, end quote. He says that he arrived in Fort Wayne at 10 um, from Dallas that night at 
and he tried to call Lisa when he arrived. He said that he called her from his cell phone at the airport several times, but she never answered, so he just decided to go home. He figured, you know, maybe they went to sleep, and there's a little girl there, and so I'm not going to wake her up. So when Bryce couldn't get a hold of Lisa to come pick him up from the airport, he claims that he called his ex-wife to pick him up and that she came and got him. Um, the police don't have any reason to believe that he would kill Kaylee and Lisa, but they do need to double check his alibi. So they call Bryce's ex-wife to verify that she did indeed pick Bryce up from the airport that night and bring him home. And to their surprise, Bryce's ex says that no, she did not pick him up from the airport. She said for a fact she knows that she did not pick him up because they had several young kids together and she would absolutely remember toting them to the airport at 10 p.m. because it would have been super inconvenient for her. One of Franklin's ex-girlfriends said that she was with him for six years. So now they kind of shift over to Franklin. And one of Franklin's ex-girlfriends said that she was with him for six years until he started doing drugs. Um, He would steal her rent money, remember the rummaging of the purse after Lisa's death, and he even stole her daughter's TV, remember the missing VCR, which he later sold for drugs. Another interesting fact is that Franklin's ex told them about this weird thing Franklin had about women douching themselves before and after sex. This is very interesting because there were two empty douche bottles in the sink. Maybe one was used before sex and the other afterwards. Frank's ex says that, quote, Frank was evil while on drugs, end quote. And the detectives pry and they say, when you say evil, what do you mean? Like, you need to be a little bit more specific. And she says that while on drugs, Frank would get so mad that he would slam her up against the wall, lift her up by the throat, and start, like, foaming at the mouth with rage. She said it kind of seemed like he was on rabies and crazed. He even did this once while she was pregnant with their child. This makes you wonder what other aggressions Franklin Douglas has in his past. Franklin's own uncle once called police because he was inside of a family member's home when Franklin pulled a gun on him and shot down between his legs. Then Franklin's uncle ran out of the house. He made it to his truck and Franklin came out and yelled, quote, I'm going to make it so you never bother anyone again, end quote, and pulled the trigger, but the gun misfired, giving Franklin's uncle just enough time to get away. Dee's uncle said that a while later, he learned about Lisa and Kaylee's murder on the news, and he recognized them as people that Franklin had brought around once or twice to a family gathering, and he said, isn't that the girl that you used to date and her little baby? And Frank said, yeah, that that was them. And Franklin's uncle flat out asked Frank, did you do this? And Frank said, no, I would never do that. Kill that little girl. I love that little girl and I would never be able to do anything to hurt her. They asked his uncle, what do you think? Do you think Dee did it? And Dee's uncle says, absolutely yes. I think he did it, especially after what he tried to do to me and I'm a blood relative there's no telling what D is capable of. With more and more witness statements pointing to Franklin, they need to see if they can 
eliminate Bryce. So they spoke to the detective who interviewed Bryce. That detective pulled out the statement taken in August um, 1993, and it says that Bryce, or June, June 1993. And it says that Bryce had said he drove his own car to the airport when he went to Dallas and left it there while he was on vacation and then drove himself home from the airport. So maybe he forgot. I mean, it has been 21 years or maybe he's just flat out lying. But they were able to pull out his cell, like the cell phone records, and they are able to see that he was telling the truth. So the cell phone records indicate that he did call Lisa multiple times and that those calls were pinged at the airport tower. And then his cell phone pings at a tower near his home, not too far later. So he wasn't near the crime scene in the window of time that they're interested in. The team feels confident in eliminating Bryce as a person of interest, and now they want to know more about Frank. So, they bring in Stephanie. Remember, Stephanie is Frank's ex-wife, and this is also the woman who was supposedly Lisa's best friend. With Bryce eliminated, they focus their efforts on Franklin. Stephanie says she remembers talking to Lisa shortly before her death. Um, She remembers Lisa telling her, well... I guess you know that this ends our friendship. And Stephanie told her, I'm so sorry. I never meant for this to happen. They have confirmation that Frank didn't get home until one in the morning. And that's within their window. But what had he been doing? They're hoping Stephanie will remember something odd about that night when he came home that is suspicious enough for them to look into. And uh, it was, I think, about 10 to 1, the night of the murder, Mm -hmm. right? I remember him coming in, and I thought he, had a, he looked really funny. Okay, do you know that what you're talking about right now is the most important thing you'll probably ever talk about in your whole life? Yeah. Why, and why is that? Because two people got murdered. You said he looked different. Be more specific. Well, Tell us everything you can think of. He always got a weird look about him when he smoked crack. It's like his skin got darker and his eyes look funny and I mean I could just tell. What was he sweaty? Um, I, I remember, you know, trying to touch his hands and he didn't want me to touch his hand and he got down on his knees and he starts crying. I'm like, what what's wrong? And he goes, Oh, I messed up, I made a mistake. I'm going to bed. I don't, no, I don't even want to. I can't deal with this. Yeah, if he killed Lisa and Kaylee? I, no, I just said. I, Why not? I just said I didn't trust him. I didn't know. I can't say that somebody did this because I wasn't with him. I don't know. So, while suspicions are growing around Franklin, they can't do anything if Stephanie can't give them anything. So, they're really relying on those DNA results from all of those items that they sent out. The douche bottles, a mouth cotton swab, the dress, the belt, and the plastic bag. So, they finally get a call from one of the scientists over at the lab, and she has to break to them the devastating news that all of the evidence that was sent into the lab for testing 
they all have too many male contributors on them, making all of the results inconclusive. Yolanda says, while it's possible that these contributors could have the killer among them, the results are more likely due to the fact that DNA evidence was handled differently in the 90s. And there are so many more protocols in place now for lab techs and police investigators to avoid this sort of contamination. But back then, the protocols weren't even in place. So it's more probable that the police, in their efforts to solve this case, ended up sabotaging it by handling the evidence without wearing gloves or storing it properly. These DNA results are devastating. They're about as bad as you could get. It's one thing when an item comes back inconclusive, you can still work on building a circumstantial case. But with these results, you've pretty much established reasonable doubt as a defense argument for anyone to make. You have to remember that this all happened in 1993, which was right before O.J. Simpson. And O.J. Simpson's case really changed the world of DNA collection. Um, it just changed the game for evidence and, and you know, properly touching and storing them, using gloves, putting them in plastic bags, minimizing contact with the outside world. So in the mind of a prosecutor, in the mind of a DA, this case was lost before they even begun. Their last shot, their saving grace, their Hail Mary is to speak with Franklin Douglas and pray for a miracle that for some crazy reason he will confess because that's literally the only card that they have left to play. So they set up a meeting to talk to Frank. They learn from Frank that he has difficulty remembering things. Um, he claims that it's because dementia runs in his family, but I'm betting more on the fact that his brain is either so fried from smoking crack for all those years, or he's just a big liar, liar, pants on fire. They ask why Frank didn't go to the funeral. That was a big thing. So why didn't you go to the funeral if you supposedly loved Kaylee so much? And he says that he didn't go because Stephanie told him not to go because the family hated him and they were all convinced that he had done it. He said... He wanted to go to the funeral and to, like, express his condolences, but Stephanie basically wouldn't let him go. And the detectives press Frank and say, all right, how come you can remember why you didn't go to the funeral, but you can't remember where you were the night of the murder? We need those details, all of the details, not just the selective details that you feel like sharing. And Frank says, quote, I don't know all the details, but the main detail is that I didn't kill nobody. I know you think I did, and I know you're just doing your job, and I appreciate that. I hope you do find out who killed Lisa and her little girl, but I'm sorry, it wasn't me, end quote. Franklin's interview was disappointing, but not at all surprising. They tried interrogating Frank for two hours, but they didn't really get anything. The main detective wants to keep working the case to see if there's anything that they missed, but Kelly gives him and us the harsh truth, the devastating reality, that even if they do find out who did it, no prosecutor, no DA would ever take the case. The DNA has created reasonable doubt forever. Anything less of a true confession 
will not ever be good enough. This case is done. It's over with. And they're not just saying that for now. They're saying that forever. Kelly, the prosecutor, doesn't think it's right to make the family believe that there's a chance when there really isn't one. The DNA didn't help them at all. It actually ended up hurting them. And it's going to be horrible, but they have to tell the family the truth. Well, we've done all of our interviews. We've tested all the evidence, and we're not any better off than what we were. The DNA evidence actually hurt us being able to go any further with the case. See, things are different. 21 years ago, DNA was different than it is today. Today, there's a lot of protocols in place so that you don't contaminate it. So what that means is your DA has a right to always say, all that DNA is built in reasonable doubt. I'm not going to file this case. And we can't sit here and leave you with the thought that maybe one day that would, that would make me crazy. Right. And I don't think it's fair to you because I don't think maybe one day is ever going to happen. Not in this lifetime. So, and, and so, never? No, never. So he's gotten rid of It's sad because we were all so hopeful, especially with all of the DNA that they were sending over to the lab, um, that they would get some information out of it. But it ended up just screwing over the entire case. And I mean, whoever did this, when they find out from watching the show that the only thing that could possibly put them away is a confession, they're literally never, ever going to confess. Jackie, Lisa's sister, and Kaylee's aunt says that she is devastated. She knows in her heart that they have to move on, but she can't help but feel that if they move on, Lisa and Kaylee are going to feel like they gave up on them. Irene, Lisa's mom and Kaylee's grandma, says that she knows that the good Lord will make sure that whoever did this gets what's coming for them, even if it's not in this lifetime. It just sucks that the police department, they did everything that they could to solve this case. As far as they're concerned in in 1993, they were following protocols. There just weren't the protocols that we have now. They did everything that they could to solve the case, but they just couldn't get there. And even now, they just can't take it across the finish line. And that's why this case is so hard for me, because a vibrant 29-year-old single mom and a beautiful 6-year-old girl with their whole lives ahead of them were taken away far too soon and in such a brutal manner. And not only is the case unsolved, but even if it was solved, There's no way they could bring the person responsible to justice, which is so incredibly frustrating. My heart hurts and I feel sick for this family. It sucks that being told that there is no hope was essentially the nicest thing that they could be told, as being told that there's a chance would do more harm than good. And I hate that being told there's no hope was the kinder option of the two. I'm sad to report that Irene Whirling, Lisa's mom, passed away just barely in August of 2020. She died never knowing what happened to her babies, but I have to believe in my heart that it was quite a beautiful reunion in heaven amongst the three of them. And if there is a hell, well, whoever killed Lisa and Kaylee will certainly be going there for sure. This is definitely the kind of person who should go there. 
Thank you all for listening. I know this case was a very heavy one, so I'm going to try and do a lighter case next week. But what do you make of the case? Let me know on the post that I make today. You know I love to hear your thoughts, theories, comments, and opinions. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram. Visit the website. Um, I'm on Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved, and my website is www.mysterystillunsolved.com. Tell a true crime loving friend or family member about me, and don't forget about the best way to support this podcast. That's by joining me next week when together we'll discover did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved? <laughs>